0: okay hi it's been a little bit uh a few weeks at least uh so you're stuck with me again would you pray with me as we get rolling father thank you for this night thank you for your love thank you for the rain and then the sunshine Thank you for the reminder uh, that you're good and that you're beautiful and that you're sovereign. And thank you that that means that each person that's here is here for a reason. And so we ask, Jesus, that you'll use your word uh, to pierce us to the division of soul and spirit. Help me to get out of the way. Help us to get out of our own way. Uh, Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Um, Remind us or show us. Your love for us tonight, in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Okay, typically, uh, typically, I think movie references in sermons are super corny, but this will be the second time in, in two weeks that I've made a movie reference in my sermon, so I don't know what the deal is. But here's the thing: I uh, I love movies. I I really do. Uh, watching films is a uniquely artistic experience for me. And those of you who know me know this well. Um, And don't ask me what my favorite movie is, uh, because I've got a million favorites. Uh, I always lie uh, when I answer that question. Um, I'm always looking for movies to see, always uh, wanting to see old movies, always wanting to see new movies. Doesn't matter. Uh, I like movies. And uh, incidentally, I do the same thing with music. I'm always looking for new music. To listen to, um, I love to watch movies, and I love to think through movies, and I love to talk through movies with friends of mine. Um, and everybody that enters into watching a film enters into it with either known or unknown priorities. And this is true for every art form. Uh, so when you uh, go to listen to music for the first time, or you go to look, up, uh, look at a painting for the first time, or read a poem for the first time, you're entering in with a list of priorities uh, that are known or unknown to yourself. Uh, and, and that will determine, in the case of movies, that list of priorities will typically determine whether or not you like the movie. Uh, that, 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 those list of priorities comes out in how you'll talk about it. And the same is true for me. Uh, here's my deal when it comes to movies. Uh, my number one most important thing when going into watching a film is character development. That's just that's my thing. Uh, that's the, the number one on the list. It makes or breaks a film for me. And I can give you countless of examples. Every year I list the, my favorite movies that I saw. Uh, during that year. So 2018 was the last full year and my number one on the list. Uh, I loved it because of the arc of the characters. Uh, the, other, the other details were cool too, but it was the arc, how different the characters were at the end versus where they were at the beginning. It was beautiful. And, uh, and I will absolutely sacrifice, this is personal, I will sacrifice other important aspects of a film if it gets that right, if it does that part well. Uh, so, plot, who cares? <laughs> you know, some of those other things that, like, sure, the Death Star may be destroyed, but who is Luke now? Right? That's the, that's the thing for me. Uh, and I'm not always sure of why that's the case. Uh, I don't always know why uh, I'm that way. But I think it's because I I have a relatively low view of humanity. Uh, so, I understand that people can accomplish things. We can build stuff. We can start things. We can have cool ideas. We can do artistic things. But people really changing, like who they are at the core of who they are, uh, that's, a, that's a big deal. Uh, that's a different thing entirely. Insofar as I can tell... True life change is only possible through the offer of the gospel of Jesus. Otherwise, any change in your life is at best partial or at worst a facade. Um, So in light of that, I'm going to use that in a second. You guys have been going through this overview of Scripture. I preached a little while back on the Ten Commandments in the midst of this series. And and the whole point, the goal of this sermon series is to see how the overarching theme of Scripture, if you look at it from a big picture, if you look at the whole Bible, what's it doing? And it's pointing to Jesus. The, 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 the whole of Scripture is ultimately pointing to Jesus. And so tonight we get to jump back in. And I'm excited. Uh, tonight's text is a narrative. It's a story. And it's really interesting for a host of reasons. Uh, And I'm going to do something a little bit different than what I normally do with my sermons. Normally with my sermons, if you heard me preach at my other church just last week, there was a little chunk of verses, and there were three points immediately out of the flow of thought that were in those verses. But tonight, I want to do a character study. I want to uh, look at the individual significant characters in this text and think through what happened to them. So, in, in light of my love for character development, and in light of same with writing, I've worked on several projects that start with character maps. I want to look at these characters and see who are they. Who are these people? I have a feeling, if you're honest, you'll find that some of these people have some things in common with you. It's not identical. But there will be some overlapping. Uh, who are they? How did they get there? What brought them to where they are? And where are they going? Where, where's this? What's the arc? What's happening in them over the course of the story? And of course, the characters that we read about are, are real. They're historical figures. But the development of each person is essential to understanding what it's trying to do overall. Um, so before we dive in, if you brought a Bible, the text is going to be up there. It's 2 Kings chapter 5. But before we dive in... Uh, I've got to give you a little bit of context. Uh, Since last Sunday, uh, over dozens of years have passed. uh, David's dead. Now, David's son Solomon is also dead. And the once proud kingdom that was reigning all throughout the region has been split. That kingdom is no longer as powerful or influential. It's much less dominant than it it once was. Disunity. Disunity has spread in the midst of the kingdom. Um, And and also since then, Israel has dealt with mostly horrible leadership. And the people have mostly given up on God in favor of other gods. Baal, etc. There's other gods that they're worshiping. So God decides to send into the midst of this broken kingdom prophets. And you've heard that language used, what a prophet is, what they do. God would send prophets into the midst of the kingdom to say, hey... Morons, it's over here. <laughs> it's you're, That's not it. It's this way. Uh, you're, you're missing it. Uh, and so the, one of the most famous ones that's before this is Elijah. And some of the most famous stories in Scripture involve Elijah. Uh, with the prophets of Baal and calling down fire from heaven. That's Elijah. Uh, going up to the mountain and hearing the still small voice. That's Elijah. But in this text... Elijah has been succeeded by a man named Elisha, whose ministry is a little bit different. Still a prophet, but he functions more like a pastor in a lot of ways uh, to the people, and you see that throughout his ministry. Um, But where we pick it up, Second Kings Kings chapter five, this story is Elisha in the midst of a series of miracles. He's his ministry, his his role is being confirmed. This guy is legit. He's from God. The things that he's saying, they're real. All right? So that's your context. That's where we pick it up. It's Elisha's ministry in the midst of a broken kingdom being confirmed. All right? So we're going to read uh, a chunk of verses. Stay with me. If you ignore everything else and hear this, that'll be worth it. Uh, So stay with me for just a few minutes here. 2 Kings chapter 5, starting in verse 1. And pay attention specifically to the characters, because we're going to go back to them. It says this. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now, the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read... When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elijah, or excuse me, when Elisha the man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters in Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it's a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Okay, uh, we're going to stop there. Uh, We are going to pick this back up later in the sermon because there's more there. But we're going to stop there for now. And I want to take a look at each of the key characters in this story and then learn from them collectively. And I want you to be intentional. As you're hearing about these characters and reflecting on them, where do you see overlap in your own life? All right. First, let's take a look at the main character, Naaman. Naaman... Uh, This is, for all intents and purposes, the first formal introduction that we've ever had to this guy. We know that Syria in the Middle East was expanding. They were growing in the the midst of Israel's failures. Syria was starting to uh, have success. And Naaman was integral to that success. As you can see from that first verse, he is a high-ranking military official in their army. He's been instrumental in the growing power of that nation. And the king of Syria knows it. They're friends to some extent. At worst, they're business associates. But they may very well be friends. They need one another. We know he's talented. And he is of high regard in that, uh, in that arena. In the military and in Syria. But we also learn something in verse 1 about God. We learn something very specific about God if you look back at the text. It says that by him, by Naaman, the Lord had given victory to Syria. And that's a fascinating statement. Because what that's communicating is God, this God, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, is sovereign over all things. Up to this point in history... God's people are represented by a geopolitical state, by the people of Israel, by the people of God. And we know from this sermon series, I was part of it. I did one of them. We know that God's been at work in the midst of Israel. He's been doing big, beautiful things, communicating his love to his people of Israel. And we could point to countless stories of that. But here, in 2 Kings 5, verse 1, we see plain as day that God, this same God, is also at work in and through Syria. And that's interesting. It's not entirely the same as the way he's at work in Israel, but we see it. It says that God is the one that allowed Syria to use Naaman's gifts to see victory after victory. So we see that God is sovereign, which just means that he possesses power. He possesses the power to bring about the things he wants to accomplish. So same with any monarch all the way to this day. Any uh, any governmental ultimate leader has sovereignty. They've got the power and the position to bring about the things that they want. God has ultimate sovereignty. He's got the position and the power to bring about that which he wants and we see his sovereignty at work in a couple of different ways. He's allowing a nation other than Israel, other than the people who are supposed to be deliberately worshipping him, he allows another nation to have success militarily and economically. And that's fascinating. And so he's, he's, he's sovereign over that kind of macro-national scene. And he's also sovereign in that he brings about this specific scenario in which a Syrian military leader is going to encounter him. So he's sovereign over the macro, over all of the things. And you see it all throughout Scripture. You see uh, later in the New Testament, we're told that God appoints governmental leaders to bring about the things that he's doing globally. And he brings about individual scenes in the lives of people. And that's just it. This gifted military leader has some sort of serious skin issue. Right, Leprosy was sort of a catch-all term. We don't know exactly what his skin ailment was. In this case, whatever it was, it was noticeable but not debilitating. You know those kinds of things that people have. There's a noticeable ailment that other people can see, but that it's not stopping him from being a gifted, gifted at the things that he's good at. But we know that it's noticeable because in the first few verses, one of Naaman's wife's servants sees it, and we're going to come back to her. She sees the problem and openly wishes that he had access to a prophet from Israel. And here's the thing. It's obviously bugging him. This skin issue is obviously bothering him. It reminds me uh, just a little bit of uh, my, one of my younger siblings when they were a kid... Uh, They they were uh, my brother was growing into his body and he had large ears for his head. And people used to make fun of him for it. And as his older brother, I used to have to get into verbal altercations with random bullies who were picking on my brother and it would motivate him. He would be angry and it would motivate him to uh, this this guy who's had great success. He knows he's got a problem because think about it this random servant girl, not his servant, his wife's servant, this random servant girl mentions a prophet from another area and he jumps at it. Right? In a society where servants' voices didn't matter and frankly, women's voices didn't matter, he was willing to listen to a servant woman because obviously this skin issue has been bugging him. Obviously, it's been uh, underneath the surface. And he can't ignore it. He just can't. And so uh, he tells the king, and the king, wanting to help him out, sends him away with a letter. uh, And he shows up and gets sent to this random prophet's house, and so he's willing to go through all this stuff. But then, Naaman, I think, understandably, misinterprets Elisha's message. I think it's understandable that he does. Naaman is a man of importance with a letter from a guy of even more importance going to a random dude's house who supposedly has power to heal and that guy won't even come out. He won't even come talk to him. And so this Jewish prophet who's not present but sends a message that comes across to him as religious activity makes him angry. I don't, need, I don't need to go wash myself in a river to be ritually clean by your standards so you'll come talk to me. That's not why I'm here. I came here for physical healing and I could bring an army down on this mess. Right? And so he leaves angry, bothered. And this is a critical point. This is a critical point in the development of Naaman because we're made aware of something for the first time here. While he may be a successful man and he may have people that would vouch for him, he is not only in need of physical healing. That's not his only problem. What his anger and his frustration and his misinterpretation, what those reveal is that Naaman is as sinful and broken and prone to error as anybody else is. Some things in his life have been really good, and some of them have been undeniably difficult, but he is as spiritually dead as anybody else. And thankfully for him, his servants are better at listening than he is. Because they picked up on the fact that Elisha wasn't just talking about ritual cleansing. It seemed to them like he was talking about physical healing. And so we don't know the attitude that Naaman takes to the water. We don't know if he was just appeasing his staff. We don't know if he'd had a change of heart. We don't know how he headed to the Jordan. He decided to, went through it, and sure enough, he was healed. He was healed. But he wasn't just healed physically. We stopped in verse 14. I'm just going to read verse 15 to you now, and we'll come back to this later. But here's what it says. It says, Then Naaman returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Right? He'd been healed not only from his leprosy, not only from that skin ailment, he had been healed from his wrong worship. He'd been healed from his spiritual and his heart problem in addition to his physical problem, which was just a manifestation. It was a way for God to draw Naaman to himself. It's a fascinating arc, seeing this powerful guy rendered helpless and rendered uh, infinitely curious and doubtful about his own skin issues that God uses to heal him spiritually and physically. Okay. We'll stop with Naaman for now. Let's look back just for a minute and look at the real hero of this story. The servant girl. The servant girl who we previously mentioned is so profound and so beautiful uh, in the midst of all of this. Let's look back to where uh, she shows up. It's in verse 2. It says, Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of leprosy. And that is all we hear about this girl. But what does that tell you? This little girl was taken. She was taken from her homeland, Israel, and she was forced to serve Naaman's wife. Think about that. Just spend a little bit of time in that space. She is captive. She is away from her family. She's away from her home. And she has been forced into service. And admittedly, there's probably worse gigs in terms of service. She's serving the wife of a high-ranking official. There's probably worse gigs in the Middle Eastern world at that time. But she's been forced there against her will. And yet... What do we learn about her character in just two verses? Number one, she's humble. She's not using these issues. She's not using these doubts to lash out. She's selfless. No words about herself in the midst of this. Only words about the people she's serving. She's compassionate and loving. She sees that this bothers her master's husband. And she's, she knows something. And so you see the, the other thing. She's proactive. She doesn't keep that internally. She doesn't hold that grudge and say, no, 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 I'm not going to tell them this. It would help him. I don't want to help him. She's proactive. And she only appears in the story for a moment, but all, literally all of Naaman's life is altered through that moment. Right. And, and, and so she's representative of something bigger than herself, which we're going to come back to in a few minutes. But there's something more. And this is a take-home. In God's sovereignty, this girl, and me, and you, this girl was in people's lives. And people were in her life for a reason. For a reason. And you, uh, it's, it's said very plainly in the book of Acts Um, We learn this. It says, And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him. This servant girl being in this place, in this moment, and being willing to speak the truth in love, was not only the difference between leprosy and clear skin. It was also the difference between spiritual death and spiritual eternal life. So that moment and this girl are reminders that you, you, you are here right now for a reason. And not even just in this church, but like wherever you live, You're there for wherever you work. You're there for this reason. So if you're a Christian, that's why God takes you where He takes you. He is using you as an extension of Him for the kingdom to draw people to Himself. That's what He's doing through you. And if you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, then the Christians in your life are there because God loves you and He wants you and He's wooing you to Himself through those people. That's how this works. And that's just part of what this girl is representative of. Let's keep moving. I'm taking too long. Who else was consequential in this story? I want to talk about the kings just for a minute. Just for a quick minute. Both the king of Syria and the king of Israel make appearances in the story. And what do we see from them? We see... We see that they both, both kings, totally miss what's going on. They both don't see it. The king of Syria wants to help his friend, which is admirable. He wants to help his buddy. But in his mind, the issue really is about leprosy. That this is my buddy. He's got this skin issue. It bugs him. I want, if there's an opportunity for him to get healed, want to see that happen. Misses what's really going on. The king of Israel is so concerned about this letter, so concerned about the oncoming conflict that he has no idea what to do with Naaman, Naaman, or the letter, um, and he just enters into weeping, mourning. Oh no! This this is this is ultimately a threat. It's a hidden threat. But the point is, here's the point for you and me. The point from the kings is that it's not really difficult. It is not difficult to miss what God is doing in your life and in the lives of others. It's not hard. Two easy ways to do it. Uh, It's Just from these kings. There's two easy ways to do it. The first one, to not understand Christian spirituality. If you don't understand Christ and the way that he's at work in the world, then even if you've got a spiritual inkling and inclination, you're going to miss what God's really doing. You're not going to be able to see it. You don't have the disposition for it. If you don't have the Holy Spirit living in you, you're going to miss it. Number one. Number two is the king of Israel. If you're self-focused. If your orientation in your thought life is toward yourself and the two inches in front of your face and what's happening in your immediate surroundings, then you will miss what God is actually trying to do through you and in the lives of people around you. Both of these kings miss it. And let's be sympathetic because these guys were kings. Their lives were way busier and more complicated than any of ours, but they still did miss it. They didn't see what was really happening. Couple more characters I want to hit. Uh, arguably, the most mysterious character in the story uh, is the one that the story is actually making a point about thematically. That's Elisha. Uh, remember, it's in the it's a, this story is in the midst of a series of stories. If you read just a couple paragraphs before. Second Kings 5, you'll see that Elisha raises somebody from the dead. Right? So it's in the midst of a series of stories. But Elisha only enters the scene once the king has started mourning. Which is really interesting. He waits until that point. It's pretty obvious he knows what's going on. But that's where he chooses to enter in. And notice in verse 8... Notice in verse 8 why he enters in. Why Elisha chooses to engage. It's not, notice this very clearly, he does not enter in so that Naaman can have his leprosy taken away. That is not the point. You'll see it. Verse 8, end of verse 8. He says, Let him come to me now, let Naaman come to me, so that he may know there is a prophet A true prophet in Israel. For Elisha, that reality is the driving factor in the whole story, and it influences every single thing that he does with everybody involved. And that point is, he wants this guy and everyone to know that there is one true God, and that he, being Elisha, is that God's servant. Right? So you see it. First, he doesn't even make an appearance when Naaman shows up. And we don't technically know why, but I can't help think it was to separate Naaman's understanding of healing from Elisha. To separate it. And you see it in Naaman's response. He's like, I want this prophet to come down here and wave his hands and heal me. And yet Naaman never shows up. He's, or Excuse me, Elisha never shows up. He stays up in his house separating the healing from him entirely second he's deliberately ambiguous he uses pretty specifically religious language go uh, wash yourself seven times in the jordan river and and you'll receive what you're looking for and to naaman that comes across as religious language and he has to humble himself maybe that is what maybe that is all it is and yet i'm willing to go try it and then third You see it uh, a little bit later. He flatly refuses. Elisha refuses to receive any payment because the work wasn't his. He didn't do it. God did it. So all of Elisha's actions and all of his statements, they confirm the work that God is doing in this Syrian general. He understands. Elisha understands who really healed him. And then Naaman learns it as well. All right. One more character. Last one. Last one, and we'll wrap this thing up. But to talk about this character, we've got to keep reading. We've got to keep reading. Starting in verse 15. You ready? Reign it back in if you zoned out. It says, Then he, being Naaman, returned to the man of God, being Elisha, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. And in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow myself... Uh, excuse me. When I bowed myself in the house of Rim, and the Lord pardon your servant in this matter, and Elisha said to him, "Go in peace." Now here's where it gets interesting. But Naaman had gone a, a short distance from him. When Naaman had gone a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, "See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought, as the Lord lives." I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, is all well? And he said, all is well. My master sent me to say, there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants and they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house and he sent the men away and they departed. He went in and stood before his master and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. Okay. Last character. Gehazi. Gehazi. Gehazi is a servant of Elisha, and he's actually, if you read 2 Kings, he's made appearances before this story. He's been a part of several of Elisha's healings. He's been a part of the ministry, and he's seen what God has done. But what do we see from him in the aftermath of this story? We see that God's work and the ministry he's called to are not enough for him. The appeal of Naaman's gifts are too strong. He wants the wealth. He wants the status. Why he ever went into ministry for money is beyond me, but that's besides the point. You see it. Here's a guy in direct contrast to Naaman who has had daily access to the works of God and to Elisha, and somehow he has totally missed the point. The man who thought his principal problem was physical gets healed spiritually along with physically. That's Naaman. And the man that has seen all of it decided he wanted the physical world instead. So, as we see in verse 27, Gehazi reaps the rewards of the physical world, they're fleeting. Okay, let's start to land the plane. Collectively, what do we learn from these characters? With special focus on Naaman and Gehazi, these characters, to me at least, point very specifically to one thing. That humanity has one primary problem. You and me, we've got one primary problem, and it is not a bad boss, or a disappointing spouse, or a dead-end job, or a health issue, or a lack of money. The primary problem in your life and in my life is that we are spiritually dead. Our souls have leprosy. Our souls are broken and sick and evil. And we can't do anything about it. Try however we might. So it doesn't matter what you brought in here with you tonight. This may be your first time in a church in years. And it may be just another one in a series of decades of Sundays doesn't matter. The primary problem in your life is that you are or were spiritually dead and that you do not want God. And I'll be honest with you, here's the difficult part for me. You can spend years and years in church seeing God work in the lives of others and still miss it. Right? That was some certainly some percentage of my story. I grew up in the church. I grew up in it and mostly hated it but had to do it. So I saw the gospel go forth. I saw stuff happen. And yet I wanted none of it. And we saw that with Gehazi. He's a guy that we all would have assumed understood this stuff, but he really didn't. At the first good opportunity, he revealed he was never really in it. And that's one of my favorite things about scum. Specifically, the, the idea behind Scum of the Earth Church is that conceptually this church is pursuing the Naaman's They're pursuing the servant girls. They're pursuing the people that are culturally far from the Lord. But I've been here enough times to know that a bunch of you have been here for a long time. Right? So those realities are still going to happen here too. So regardless of what you brought in with you, know that in God's sovereignty, He's got you here tonight to hear or be reminded of The good news. And that's what you see in the end of Naaman's story. That there is healing, there is wholeness, there is fulfillment. And that's what this story really serves, and it fits with the narrative of your sermon series. This story points to a bigger, fuller story in which our sin and our spiritual brokenness are ultimately paid for and solved. Naaman's leprosy was healed and his heart was reoriented toward the one true God. Right? But his separation needed to be atoned for, just like ours. And that's where Jesus comes in. That's where we get this story is ultimately pointing to Jesus. That, that, that Jesus, that God of the universe, came into this earth to live a normal yet perfect life in order that He could atone for our sins, that He could purchase our perfection, that we could be healed through Him. And we're given a picture of that person through the slave girl, incidentally, of all people. The slave girl has some of those characteristics. Selfless, humble, a servant, loving, And it changed Naaman's life. On a small level, that's a picture of Jesus. Who came lovingly for you because He wanted you and He purchased your healing on the cross. And that's what this series is about. That's what Scripture is ultimately about. And that's what this story is about. It reminds us of Jesus. So wherever you fit in the story, if you're a Naaman... Right? If you're one of the kings and you've been missing it, if you're uh, a, a one of the servants who's just kind of involved, wherever you're at, know that your story ultimately can and does and will point to Jesus. And that's why you're here tonight. Alright, so let's continue uh, this service. Let's continue to worship Him together. I'm going to pray, um, and we'll, uh, we'll keep this thing moving. Father, thank You. Thank You that You're honest with us. Uh, Thank you that you love us. And thank you that you want us. We may be coming in bruised and hurt. We may be coming in confident and loud. But you want each one of us. And you were willing, you were willing to come and live a perfect life and die the death that we deserved So that You could have us. So that You could heal us. Thank You for that reminder. We ask that You'll grant that here tonight. That in a fresh way, we will leave healed. Or for the first time, that we'll give ourselves over to it. Thank You, Jesus. It's in Your name we pray. Amen.